0: Well, to Hebrews chapter 9, we're looking tonight at verses 15 through 28. Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28. Hear the Word of God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can close out this Lord's day and study of your word and pray that as we study it, Father, we would worship you in the contemplation of the scriptures, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the requirement for forgiveness? In a word, death. Specifically, the death of Christ. For our forgiveness, Christ had to die. There are those, of course, who said, well, he didn't really have to die. His untimely murder on the cross was just an accident. plan gone bad. And God went on to make the best of a bad situation. Plan B, as it were. But, of course, we reject that idea. The Scriptures are very plain, quite plain that the suffering and death of Jesus was God's plan all along. For example, Isaiah 53, verse 10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus himself makes the case that this is precisely what's going to happen, tells his disciples, on more than one occasion, Uh, One of them is Mark chapter 10, verse 33, verse 34, says to his disciples, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Jesus could not have made it more plain had he drawn them a picture. And again, Peter in the book of Acts uh, removes once and for all any questions about the necessity and the inevitability of Christ's death. And when he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So whether we're looking at the Old Testament whether we're looking at uh, Jesus' own prediction of his death and the manner of his death and his resurrection. uh, As we looked at the Gospel of Matthew, we talked about someone might see circumstances that they could surmise would lead to their uh, being killed, uh, but there's not too many people who would then say that they were going to rise three days later. Uh, No one would see that coming about himself unless, of course, uh, it had been decreed by God. It would be so, and that's what Jesus says. So it's clear, but we have to recognize, as plain as that seems to be to us, that it was difficult for the Jews to swallow uh, the idea of a suffering and dying Messiah. Uh, We see that, of course, with Jesus' own ministry, Jesus' I uh, would tell his disciples, as we saw in Mark and in other places, how he was going to suffer and die. Well, we, of course, have Peter's uh, recorded response to that. Peter, uh, this, this Jewish man who had his ideas of the Messiah as he understood them. And when Jesus says he's going to suffer and be killed, uh, Peter's response is never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus replied, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in, th- in, in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So it was clear, on the one hand, that Jesus the Messiah had to die. It's also clear that for the Jews, that was a contradiction in terms. A suffering, a dying Messiah was an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp or virtual reality. Those were two words that there was a dissonance. that They clashed with each other, and yet it was so. Now, we need to keep that in mind as we're looking at these passages in Hebrews, uh, because while these were Christians, while these were those who had accepted the gospel, coming out of a Jewish background, uh, nevertheless, in the face of their own suffering, in the face of their own difficulties, uh, we need to recognize that's the background for them, that it required quite a quite a, a large amount of progress to get to the point of accepting a suffering and dying Messiah, And it seems that under the pressure of persecution, uh, that they are wavering. And we need to recognize that background as the writer to the Hebrews is spelling out the meaning of the priesthood as it relates to Jesus. And Jesus, as he relates to the Old Testament priesthood and the whole matter of the sacrifices for sin, everything that was going on there and the superiority of Jesus' priesthood and what we have now in him compared to what they had in the Old Testament. And so here in chapter nine, uh, earlier, uh, we had looked at the uh, the ministry of Jesus as compared to the old tabernacle and how he enters into the heavenlies, into the presence of God. Well, he spells that out further here. Why Christ had to suffer? Why it was necessary for him to die? Why forgiveness ultimately required a dying Messiah? And he draws his reasons out of the Old Testament. So, in verse fifteen, we pick up uh, with the word therefore. Uh, As he's been talking about uh, the old system in Christ now with this eternal ministry, he says, therefore, referring back to what's been said, that Christ, because of his sacrificial ministry, has become the mediator of a new and better covenant. Uh, Because he has paid for our sins himself, Jesus providing this full payment for sins, his death accomplishing what the Old Testament system could only point to, could only represent symbolically, He picks up with the word, therefore. Um, He's the mediator of a new covenant. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, that sort of is a summary statement that he he begins to unpack and unfold in the verses that followed. Uh, How were Old Testament people saved? Were they saved by the blood of Animals? No. Uh, That's what he says in verse 15. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. They were saved by the blood of Christ just as you and I were saved by the blood of Christ. And that's the point that he is making here. They looked forward to a Savior just as we look back on a Savior. In a sense, their forgiveness was on credit until such time as Jesus actually came and made it good. That's, That's actually what yeah even it's pretty it's much closer say than uh, the book of uh, Joshua to Jesus death even during Jesus own ministry the man who was paralyzed and Jesus pronounces his sins forgiven and the you know, the people are thinking some of the Jews are thinking well who is this man who claims to forgive sin he's blaspheming only god can forgive sin and Jesus says which is easier to say to this man your sins are forgiven or to say to this man get up and walk of course, the, the irony in that is we would say, well, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven because who can verify it? For him to say to the man, get up and walk, uh, provides opportunity for immediate verification. Either he can do it or he can't. But of course, the, the, the deeper truth behind that, it, from Jesus' point of view, to say get up and walk is, is nothing. It's the mere exercise of sovereign divine power to restore this man so that he can walk. But to say your sins are forgiven was going to require Jesus dying on the cross to make good, uh, that, that forgiveness on credit, so to speak, until such time as Jesus would suffer and die and atone for that man's sins. And so that's what he's saying in verse 15. A death has occurred that redeems them, those under the old covenant, from the transgressions committed under that first covenant. Paul makes the same point in Romans 3 that uh, the writer of the Hebrews makes in 15. He says, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and justifier the one who has faith in Jesus. Passed over their sins, but only temporarily because he was going to make good his forgiveness through the death of Christ. Now, That's sort of the theme. That's kind of the big idea of this passage right there in verse 15. But he goes on to spell it out, giving three reasons it was necessary for Christ the Messiah to die. Um, First, verses 16 through 18, a will requires a death. A will requires a death. He uses this analogy of a will uh, to to illustrate why Jesus' death is necessary. Verse 16, where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. It has to occur. It has to be established that it occurred. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not enforced, as long as the one who made it is alive. He refers in verse 15 to this promised eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ. Well, maybe that keys his thinking about a will. An inheritance usually is is, uh, bequeathed through a will being enacted. Now, we're familiar with that. Uh, I hope you have a will. I have a will. Uh, as long as I'm alive, my will is just a sheet of paper. That's several sheets to be exact. But um, once I die, then that will is put into effect. Then it becomes a law uh, guiding how possessions are distributed, how an inheritance is to be passed along. And that's simply the illustration that he's used here. It's one that we are familiar with. Now, God has promised us a glorious inheritance in Christ, an inheritance that becomes mine, that becomes yours, through the death of Christ. In a sense, as long as he's alive, those blessings could not come to us. But with his death, that inheritance is secured. Now, the death of bulls and goats puts into effect the first covenant in a symbolic and representative way. Uh, the death of Christ is the death that brings about this inheritance that we have through this new covenant. So that's the first argument he makes fairly briefly in verses 16 through 18. Uh, much more we could go into with those verses, but um, the, the basic idea is christ 's death puts his will into effect, which gives us the eternal inheritance referred to in verse 15. So that 's one reason a will requires a death. Second reason is forgiveness requires blood. Forgiveness requires blood. And this is kind of the heart of the passage, verses 18 on down through verse 26. A lot of verses there. The key verse, kind of in the middle, is verse 22, where he makes the statement, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And the principle, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. Because the blood here is not Effective in and of itself, blood is, is used here in the sense that it represents life. The life of the creature. Leviticus 17.11 says for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, again, blood is merely representing a life or to be precise, blood represents a Death. That's why he says without the shedding of blood, in other words, without a death occurring, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, as he mentions, the old covenant was ratified with blood, refers to Moses who took the blood of calves and goats, water, scarlet wool, hyssop, sprinkles, the book of the law, sprinkles the people. to, to cleanse, to purify, to ratify this covenant in the same way sprinkled, verse 21, of the blood, both the tent, all the vessels used in worship, because practically everything, it's sprinkled with blood as a way of, of ratifying the covenant and showing that it's covered under the covenant. And uh, so he represents cleansing through the blood of these animals. Now, those things are sufficient in the Old Testament where the whole system is, is symbolic or representative but not ultimately efficacious, can't be saved by the blood of bulls and goats. The uh, the earthly tabernacle was but a representation of the presence of God, and was the presence of God, where God dwelt in the midst of his people. But that's the point he's making. Ultimately, while they suffice to cleanse the copies of the heavenly things under the old covenant, the new covenant requires richer blood. Or to put it another way, it requires a, a more valuable Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He goes on in uh, verse 24 to say Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, not into an earthly tabernacle copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And he makes the point it doesn't have to do so repeatedly, as the human priests, the, the old covenant priests would have to do. Uh, but Jesus goes in once uh, and for all time. And another difference is he goes in and he offers his own blood. None of the priests under the old covenant offered themselves. Jesus offers the blood of the Lamb of God, namely himself. And so that's why Jesus, as we as we uh, said today with the Lord's Supper there in the upper room, when he establishes the Lord's Supper, says to his disciples as he's holding the wine, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Or you could uh, emphasize my, in my blood. Because he's making the distinction, one, it's a new covenant, but the other distinction is this covenant is put into effect through his blood. He's making the distinction that the writer to the Hebrews makes here. The old covenant, what sufficed for that, but the new covenant in Christ, what would be required? Not the blood of bulls and goats, but Jesus' own blood. That's why he says this cup is... I think it would be fair to translate that, to, to render that represents, this cup represents, this cup is, it represents the new covenant put into effect through my blood, which was going to be shed the next day on the cross. And so ratify this, this new covenant, uh, sacrificed on an altar, not of stone, but an altar of wood, cross. So we need to recognize this, this truth he's talking about, this reason that forgiveness requires blood. Or to put it another way, forgiveness requires a death to atone, to pay for sin. You know, I don't know about you, when I pray, I often pray for forgiveness. And sometimes it's, I mean, we should, certainly should. But sometimes it's all too easy to pray that God would forgive your sin without really reflecting on the price tag on that prayer request, isn't it? Lord, forgive me. Forgiveness is a costly thing. It's free to us who repent who ask, and yet it is costly to God beyond our comprehension. Price for sin must be paid. Christ paid that price for His people with His blood. He suffered the death under the judgment of God that we deserved. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or say rise and get up and walk. Just say rise and get up and walk. That's easier because of the price it costs Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. If you ever stop and think about that, maybe this week when you're saying, Lord, forgive me for whatever, just to stop and think for a second the cost to God. It will take, and it took, to answer that prayer. A couple of responses as you do that. One, the knowledge that God has forgiven your sins in Christ and what it cost Him to do that should fill you with an overwhelming sense of gratitude and an overwhelming sense of devotion to the Lord that He willingly and gladly paid that price for you. You know, as we grow to recognize the depth uh, and the breadth of our own sinfulness, Meditate on it. Think about that. And what it costs God to forgive that, pardon us for that, while maintaining the integrity of His own justice. Um, might make us think of that woman who came to Jesus. A uh, questionable character, but came to Jesus, wet His feet with her tears, wiped His feet with her hair, uh, kisses His feet, pours perfume on them. This extravagant devotion to Jesus. And when His host, the Pharisee, objected, to the behavior, remember what Jesus said, He who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, if you're a Christian, you've been forgiven and not a little. You've been forgiven a lot. But it goes back, I think Jesus is getting it going back to perception. Do you perceive how much God has forgiven you? Do you, do you understand that it's not a few bucks? It's billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. Uh, even, even more than the figures we talk about with our government's debt, as Jesus used in the parable of the unforgiving servant, where he puts it in financial terms, uh, of, of being forgiven a vast amount of, of money. Uh, we recognize that, and it does cultivate this devotion and gratitude to God that, uh, as we think of God's forgiveness, that we have every reason to love Him much. Second response, as you think about that, is is just as the sense of forgiveness and how much we have been forgiven fills us with gratitude and devotion to God at the same time it should cultivate in your heart a revulsion toward sin, a, a repugnance toward sin uh, the the existence of it in our own hearts and in others in this world, particularly uh, in our lives in our in our sinning against Christ how can we As forgiven sinners, take lightly or presume upon God's grace uh, and the price paid to forgive us by by sinning willingly, carelessly. When we think about the cost of our salvation, how can we presume upon that? How can we take sin lightly? How can we sin easily? We've talked about that before, that, that attitude that Paul talks about in Romans 6, of presuming on God's grace. Do we go on sinning? That grace may abound? Absolutely not. You know, a Christian should never have this mentality that, well, I'm forgiven, so I don't really have to be that concerned about sin. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. And as we recognize what it cost God to forgive us, what it cost Christ to forgive us, not only should that cultivate devotion, but it should also cultivate a true hatred for sin. That it was, it was these very things for which Jesus suffered and died. So why would we go there? Why would we want to be involved? Why would we presume on His grace to to sin against Him in that way? So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But praise God, Christ's blood was shed. Think of the hymn, uh, another hymn. We sang one uh, this morning by Horatius Bonar. Uh, But another hymn of his, Know not despairingly, the words faithful and just art thou, forgiving all. Loving and kind art thou when poor ones call. Lord, let the cleansing blood, blood of the Lamb of God, pass over my soul. Well, mentions a couple of reasons we've looked at. A will requires a death. Forgiveness requires blood. Uh, In other words, death. But then the last thing he mentions is that salvation for us requires a substitute. Another reason he mentions salvation requires a substitute. We see this in the last couple of verses. Verses 27 and 28. Uh, The two great inevitabilities in this life are not death and taxes. They are death and judgment. That's what he's talking about here Uh, in verses 27 and 28. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We all have to die. And our death is by divine appointment. It is not random. It is not uh, just the result of chaos in this world or in our bodies. It is the appointment of God. It is appointed for man to die, he says. now, And then after that comes the judgment. We Christians think in a linear fashion. We are not uh, into Eastern mysticism where we keep looping around and getting recycled or reincarnated. Uh, but we progress through this life to death. And then to judgment, uh, which for sinners is bad news, very bad news. Uh, Unable to atone for our sins, God's judgment requires our blood, requires our death, our eternal death in hell, except for the fact that God in his grace has provided a substitute. The good news is that there is a substitute. Uh, Just as man is destined, as he says, to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. What do you have to do to be one of those many? Notice it does say many. There's a text for your doctrine of limited atonement. For many. Uh, but to be one of those many. The Bible of course just says believe on the Lord Jesus. And you'll be one of those many. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. But what drives us to Christ? Well a sense of our sinfulness. A sense of that that oncoming judgment. That is a reality that every person will face that drives us to the Lord Jesus, a sense of sinfulness before a holy and just God. What is the requirement for forgiveness? The writer of the Hebrews is clear. Death, specifically the death of Christ. Because there's no other way for sinners like you and me to be right with a holy God. And so, as he says here, when Christ returns, he will come Not to bear sin the second time, not to bear sin, not to die for it, but to usher in the salvation he won for us with all of its fullness uh, for those who are trusting in him, those who are waiting on him. And so he finishes this passage on a high note, reminding us that Jesus is coming again, not to suffer and die, not, as he says, to deal with sin, but to save those for whom he died, those who are eagerly waiting for him. I pray that by God's grace, each of us is among that number, among that many, among those who do look forward and anticipate the the return of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, long passage, a lot here. Uh, But Father, we do want to give thanks to you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Perfect mediator of a new covenant, an efficacious covenant, a covenant that for us means eternal salvation and eternal inheritance. Father, we pray that you would impress on our hearts more and more the sinfulness of sin. Help us to see it as you see it. Father, impress on us the, the vast value of the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, shed for us. And Father, impress upon us a a tremendous sense of devotion and gratitude and thanksgiving to you for accomplishing our salvation once and for all time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.